on the record is brought to you by Steve and Adele Dufalo. San Antonio is a fast-growing, fast-moving city with something new happening every day. That's why each week we go on the record with Randy Beamer and the newsmakers who are driving this change. Then we gather at the Reporters' Roundtable to talk about the latest news stories with the journalists behind those stories. Join us now as we go on the record with Randy Beamer. Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for On the Record this week. I'm Randy Beamer, and we are starting with the latest on a controversial development north of Helotus that neighbors say would discharge too much wastewater into Helotus Creek. Joining us to talk about this is Annalisa Peace of the Greater Edwards Aquifer Alliance. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Now, this is something you've been fighting for a couple of years now, and the latest on this is TCEQ has approved the permit. What does that mean and are you still fighting this? Yes, so they have uh, approved the uh, permit application for a wastewater plant that will discharge into Lotus Creek. It'll be discharging tre uh, treated sewage effluent. And we, the Greater Edwards Aquifer Alliance and the, the neighborhoods out there will be contesting this permit. So it's a formal process. We will be asking the TCQ to deny the permit. And this is Lenar Homes. They want to build, what, 2,900 homes on 1,600 acres and build this wastewater treatment plant because saws can supply the water, but outside in this area, they don't have to supply the wastewater treatment or sewage treatment. How big a problem is this, in your opinion, it's a problem, out in the extraterritorial jurisdiction outside of San Antonio? Well, it, it is a big problem, and SAWS actually had very much concerns, so they, they declined to uh, supply wastewater service and they as a condition of the water service they told Lennar they had to cut the number of homes in half on that site uh, so they did have big concerns about that um, it's uh, hugely problematic because uh, the latest studies commissioned by the city of San Antonio say that releasing wastewater into Helotus uh, Creek in that area goes directly in to recharge the Edwards aquifer even and, though it's on the contributing side. And some had pushed for septic tanks instead of a wastewater treatment plant. Were, were there more stringent requirements in this treatment plant than in others? Um, no, the, the permit application is pretty standard, and that's one of the things that we're asking for uh, when we contest the permit would be a much, much stricter standards for the treatment. But TCEQ has those standards that they have deemed acceptable because treated, people might not realize what treated wastewater is. In San Antonio, you would consider it reuse water. Mm -hmm. You can't swim in it and it's not good for rivers, but they say it's seven miles upstream from most of Helotus Creek in the aquifer. Well, seven miles from the recharge zone is what they say in their statement. Uh, the latest study from Southwest Research says that it's actually recharging within those seven miles. But even so, seven miles from the recharge zone, if you're releasing that much sewage effluent that is not treated to drinking water standards, it doesn't like magically clean itself up as it runs down Colotus Creek for those seven miles. And a lot of uh, 
the times of year, depending on drought conditions, there's very low flows. So the majority of the flows would be that sewage effluent that's recharging the Edwards. And you're not just concerned about that, but stormwater runoff as well, because they have, what, 30% of what's called impervious cover, and you want more than that. Yeah, I mean... Or less than that, I should less, say. Less, yes, because the scientists tell us that, uh, say, between uh, uh, 7 to 15 percent is actually what's safe for the aquifer, and that's an indication of urbanization, and so you have all the pollutants uh, that come with an urbanized site that run off and uh, enter uh, the watershed. Uh, and so you want uh, basically 85% uh, trees, grass, whatever that would absorb that. Exactly. Instead of asphalt and homes, things right. like that. How many other developments are like this or likely to be built in that great area that is going to be developed or a lot of people think it's going to be well, developed? Well, that's a big concern because especially in that area, uh, the scientists are concerned it's on the contributing zone, but it, it is actually uh, in, in a lot of the area directly recharging the Edwards. And so, you know, the city had been purchasing land with the Edwards Aquifer Protection Program. We would like them to be spending more in that area to protect it because uh, that area and, and the San Geronimo Valley that goes up and like uh, all the way up to Bandera, they say between, I think it's... Uh, seven and 15% um, of our water supply for the Edwards comes from that area. Now, some people up there also are worried about their kids swimming in Halotus Creek up there. Yeah, and you know- That they had been swimming and now they won't be able to. Yeah, because it wouldn't meet recreational standards. And, and uh, the city of Great Forest has a, a little uh, swimming area that they use for their residents. It's lovely. I mean. Uh, with the effluence, we would we would uh, consider, you know, that it it would get a lot of algae in there. Well, now this is the same kind of treated wastewater that say is pumped into the San Antonio River near the headwaters to make sure that actually there's a river running through Brackenridge Park and down through the Riverwalk, because otherwise the the water is too low. There would be no river. Right. There. They can't. You can't swim in the San Antonio River in the same way that you can't. We won't be able to swim up there. How? I don't want to say bad is the water, but how uh, is it for swimming? What are the, you know, the the numbers in terms of how it affects uh, potability? Well. Um you know, the state has recreational standards. So, of course, the San Antonio River, because it's uh, we're putting that uh, effluent in, which is a great thing because then we're not pumping from the aquifer, but it, it doesn't meet recreational standards. And with this effluent going into Lotus Creek, Lotus Creek would not meet uh, recreational standards either. And what kind of algae is in some of the other... Or, uh, rivers and things like the San Antonio River where this wastewater is pumped in? Well, um, San Antonio River hasn't had a big uh, problem with, with algae growth and all, but with this treatment plant, we feel like the nitrogen and phosphorus limits uh, that are being allowed it would result in a lot of algae growth, which is really bad for, for the uh, you know, fish populations and all too. And now the Southwest Research Center has also done some work on this. What have they found? Yeah, the city 
uh, commissioned a study uh, through the Edwards Aquifer Protection Plan, and their findings, I think the most startling and, and one of the reasons we're so adamant about this was that uh, releasing uh, wastewater within the area that they're talking about for this permit would uh, threaten it to pollute the Edwards Aquifer. Are you, so are and they, you, I, say, I guess they say it would pollute the Edwards Aquifer. And people might think, well, that, I mean, there's so much water in the Edwards Aquifer that this would not affect overall uh, the drinking water that we have, that it still filters through the limestone and by the time it gets to the wells, it would be fine. No, the, the Edwards doesn't actually filter water. I mean, it's, uh, that water goes in there and with, with no filtration because it's large channels and all. The, the fissures that go in there, the water goes directly in. So uh, we rely on actually, uh, you know, the land within the Edwards to, to filter the water. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hugely problematic that so many people think that. Now that it's been approved, are, do you have any recourse in court or what's the next step? Um, yeah, so we will be asking for a contested case hearing, which means we're contesting the permit. Uh, we hope that the TCQ will uh, recognize uh, the Aquifer Alliance and uh, the citizens in that area as affected parties so that we can move forward. And uh, the outcome is a lot of times with these, there's negotiated settlements where we will ask for various improvements to the project. Uh, on this one, we would actually like to see the project den denied. All right, well, thank you very much for coming in and explaining this to us. Annalisa Peace, Greater Edwards Aquifer Alliance. Thank you. Okay, thanks. The number of migrants passing through San Antonio from the border and on the way to the rest of the country, well, that number has dropped in recent days, which is a good thing in terms of how much money the city is getting to run what used to be called the Migrant Resource Center, now the Centro de Bienvenidos. And joining us to talk about that is Dr. Sukor of the San Antonio City Council, thank you very much for coming in. Absolutely. Tell us about the numbers that a lot of people heard about last fall that were up to 1,000 people a day, 1,100 people a day. They were, you know, 200, 500, sometimes sleeping outside. That's changed now. Why? So uh, back in the, at the end of November, beginning of December, we saw a, a, a significant uptake in the number of migrants that were coming in. And remember, this, this is a center where they stay for a couple of days and then move on to their final destination. But at the beginning of December, the federal government decided to decrease the amount of funding that Catholic Charities was actually receiving in reimbursement to purchase transportation for folks. And it was a big drop. It was a big was drop. Four million a month to 500,000 mm -hmm. from FEMA. Yeah, exactly. And so um, given that drop in, uh, we think, uh, some other factors like the weather, the, uh, the holiday season, we've actually seen a drop in the amount of migrants that are coming on a daily basis. So uh, over the last 30 days, since basically around Christmas, the, the average has been around 250 that are coming per day, per day to the center to receive resources. And the capacity for that building is actually over 700. So uh, this means that it prevents people from having to sleep outside, especially with all the inclement, inclement weather we've been facing. We were worried that folks were going to not have a place to stay, but we've been under capacity, and so we didn't actually have to uh, worry about that as much. And this has op been open about a year and a half, July 2022, I think it opened. Um, What's the future for this? Catholic Charities runs it and they need 
everything from blankets to all kinds of donations and money. What's the future for this now that the money has dropped? So the federal government still is reimbursing the funding for this, so it's not coming from the city. And so it's important for us to have a center for these folks to come in. You know, they've some of these people have been traveling for three months to get here and uh, gone through so many hoops and just trying to find a way to get to their final destination. So when they come here and they get access to a place to sleep, food, uh, new clothing that they can wear, and then move on to their final destination, they really appreciate it. I actually met someone, I recently wrote an op-ed about this topic, and I met someone on a flight that I was traveling to DC and she was sitting next to me and she'd been traveling for three months from Honduras and stopped at the Centro, got her resources. She was there for less than 24 hours, she said. She was able to get on her flight and make it to her final destination and I actually helped her reunite with her brother who she hadn't seen for years. And it was, uh, and so you, you think about the compassion that goes into the work that's happening and it's really important. And yes, we gotta make sure they have enough funding to do so and we've been advocating and working with our federal government to make sure we're still continuing to get that support. But that this work is is necessary, and I think we'll, we're going to keep supporting them as long as necessary. And when you say we, it's not the city of San Antonio's money, as many people think it is. Right. And they come from the border, and they they have to have a sponsor or say where they're planning to go. So they're only here for a couple, three days, if that. Yeah, so it, it can be any, if they already have a flight that's leaving that day, they can just be stopping through, get what they need and move on. But it's a short time frame. So it's you know anywhere from one to three days is the average time frame for how long they're staying. Uh, if they don't have already a means of transportation and they're not able to get that immediately, it could be a little longer. But for the majority of people, it's a short stopover. Now, in the past, people have gone down San Pedro and they have seen a lot of people, sometimes 100 or 200, outside there. Uh, people had been concerned in that neighborhood, in that area about crime. Tell us about where that is now with the numbers down. And so it's important to remember it's not a jail, right? Folks aren't required to stay inside. It's a place for them to get uh, peace and recovery just for a little bit on their way. So a lot of them do decide to sit outside. They go to the HEB across the street, that CC's Pizza. They're using resources, but many of them are just spending a little bit of time until they get on to their final destination, like mentioned. But that doesn't mean that the trash and things like that isn't uh, more than what's normally experienced by both the residents and the businesses around the area. So we've actually been working with our city departments to make sure that we're helping keep it a safe place for all of those that are using around the area that may not be uh, attending the center. So public waste is going, uh, solid waste is going out there three times a day to clean up. Our office goes to three times to just check on the surrounding area. And we have SAPD doing more frequent uh, just drive-bys and just checking to see everything is okay with their safe office. And that's a center for legal immigrants, those who have been waiting or will be awaiting asylum and to see a judge at some point now, yes. years down the road. Exactly. So they can't even come in without papers at the border. And so they're given a, a court date where they say, this is when you'll uh, appear in front of the judge based on the final city that they're going to. Um, and then they have papers to come into the actual center. Now to move to a different uh, topic that people might assume is the same because they see people on the street, homeless. Totally separate uh, deal from the Migrant Resource Center, Centro de Bienvenidos. But uh, that is an ongoing problem in San Antonio. Where are we with that and what, what are you doing? 
So many of you all may know we actually passed a low barrier shelter to be um, starting in December, late fall, in our last budget cycle that was also being funded by uh, ARPA dollars, so not by city dollars. Um, that low barrier shelter is online and we actually have 95 people already staying there. When, so you call a, when you call it a low barrier shelter, what does that mean? It means that you are not required, there are less regulations for you to go there. So we've had Haven for Hope for a long time and a lot of folks have had now. Still we do, yes, and it's an amazing resource, but it's not a fit for all. So what we know is we need housing at all levels of spectrum. So a low barrier shelter makes it a little bit easier for folks to actually access uh, a space to live and um, and do so, and then can get the all the support they need. So they get uh, a social worker or a counselor or whatever help they need to be able to get back on their feet. So it's a lower barrier to entry. And where is that? It's in downtown. Um, and so it's a few blocks away from City Hall. And so we have a capacity of up to 200 people that are going to be there and that'll come to full capacity over the next month or two. Um, and that's been a great help. We also had our point in time count last night. I was actually out there from nine to midnight last night talking to folks on the street, figuring out what is it that they need. And every single person we talked to that we were doing this observation data on said, there is the, there's a question on the survey that says, what are the three most important things that you need right now? And given that it was raining and it, it was cold, folks were like, we just need a place to, to sleep and then food to eat. And, and this then, is point in time count means every year we do this point in time for the homeless. Do we have the numbers back yet? Uh, no, we'll get the numbers in a few months. And so we had the numbers from last year where basically we don't use it directly as a tracking year over year because it is an observation tool and things like weather could take an impact on the numbers that we see last year from this year because it's just one day, one night count. So it happened last night from five to midnight. Um, but we'll get the numbers in a few months to be able to see what is it that uh, the folks on the streets are telling us that they need and how can we be able to get them housing first. And the various encampments that are around town, what's being done to, to help those people move off the streets, encourage so, them to because some people don't want to. And, and that, so uh, the question on the survey was what I was saying is that number one thing that people need is a place to sleep. We need more housing options for folks. And if we can get people into a housing uh, place, then they're able to fi find some stability, get a part-time job. I had a gentleman who had been on the streets that I was talking to last night for 12 years, and he's now on the priority list for housing. And he was ecstatic that he's on the short list because he, once, he, once he gets a place to, to stay, he was committed to being able to find a part-time job. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming in and explaining all that. Dr. Sook. CORE, SAN ANTONIO CITY COUNCIL. THANKS. THANK YOU SO MUCH. WITH ALL THE NATIONAL POLITICAL NEWS RECENTLY COMING OUT OF IOWA AND THEN THIS WEEK NEW HAMPSHIRE, WE MAY HAVE FORGOTTEN THAT RIGHT HERE IN TEXAS WE HAVE PRIMARIES COMING UP IN MARCH. AND THAT BRINGS UP THE FUTURE OF OUR ELECTIONS ADMINISTRATOR HERE IN BEAR COUNTY. JACKIE Callanan HERE TO TALK ABOUT THAT IS ANDREA DRUSH WITH THE SAN ANTONIO REPORT political reporter. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You've been uh, covering what's going on with Jackie Callanan and the Elections Commission recently. What's the future for her? Because in the past, she's been criticized by different groups. Yeah, Jackie Callanan has had this job since 2005 in Bear County, and she said after the 2020 election that was her last presidential election she'd done. And then she kind of went quiet for a while. She did the 2022 midterm and um, her critics started ramping up calls for a meeting of this elections commission, which is tasked with hiring and firing the elections administrator several months ago. And her critics had been saying that she needed to have more voting locations on election day. Yeah, more voting locations, more voter outreach, the type of things that in Harris County, 
um, drew the ire of Republicans, and eventually they threw out their elections administrator there. So um, she was getting it from she was the getting left, criticism really, from because the she, left. they yes. wanted more voting locations in Harris County and across the country. It's generally Republicans who have been hard on elections administrators. Yes, and to be clear, Jackie Callanan has some critics on the right too. But um, compared to other major counties like Tarrant County, which got rid of its um, elections administrator as soon as they got a conservative new county judge. Like mostly they're pushed up on the right. Jackie Callanan, there's a group of um, young people who are registering new voters who feel like she's been too hard on the deputy registrars and that we have fewer uh, voter volunteer deputy registrars here than other major counties and that 2024 is this major opportunity to engage new voters and that they want somebody else in that role who's going to make more of it. And this is one of those posts just that right now is getting so much criticism, I believe, Gillespie County, Fredericksburg, all the elections people yeah. there quit. Yeah. Uh, because it's so tough, because they're getting such uh, criticism, but it, it's a little different here. What's her future as of right now? So that role is overseen by the Elections Commission, which had not met since 2005, the county thinks. The records are a little fuzzy, but uh, that is the tax assessor collector, the county judge, the county party chair from the Democrats and the Republicans, and the uh, county clerk. And they convened for the first time since 2005 recently to look at setting a succession plan for Kalanen. Um, they said she, has, she hasn't made clear what her plans are, but they're going to reconvene in 60 to 90 days. And that, I think, maybe puts a little control over getting her to do the things that they want them to do. Judge Peter Sakai called her in right around after Christmas to say, I want us to stay out of court because they've been sued twice over too few voting locations on election day and then had to last minute add some more. Because Callanan is saying, we've got these voting centers, everyone can vote wherever, so let's put our resources toward these the ones that are most used, and that has caused a... So the early voting locations she came up with then and gave them a list this week as a deadline for that, for the primaries. Yes. And so commissioners in that meeting on Tuesday, that was the deadline. They were unhappy that they were just now seeing this list on Tuesday. Um, she'll have to come back with the election day locations, which is where they could get into some legal trouble. But I think you see a disconnect between how the commissioner's court feels about her and the people on the elections commission feel about her. That is a group that includes... Um, you know, people from the political parties, and, and rumor has that Nelson Wolf never wanted to deal with this issue, so he never summoned them. The third rail of, yeah. or a third rail of politics here. But uh, so, what do you think the the party chairs are? They more friendly to keeping her? Yeah, they when after she was brought, I guess she didn't even have to be there. But on uh, a week ago, when she was in the meeting with the elections commission, and they heard critics and supporters on both sides. All of, everyone on that commission came up and thanked her and hugged her. And so I think that those guys might be more skeptical about finding somebody new before the 2024 election and that, could that be, can satisfy both the Republican and Democratic chairs. Hard. And she had in those party chairs and party people from both sides it was a year or two ago uh, after there was all this concern about the elections in 2016, 2020. Different group of people. It's the elections board. The party chairs are also on that one, but so is the sheriff and some others. And that's who s determines who the voting locations are and some other details of how she does her job. So the commissioners don't actually have final say over what the voting locations are. They are supposed to be accepting the direction from the election board. So the 60 to 90 days puts her, she will definitely be in charge of the primaries. Uh, and they'll reconvene. Any sense of what might happen, given your... She said that she wants to stay on. She says that that was the comments that she made about not wanting to do it in 2024 were made in frustration because of the things that were going on during COVID and um, the governor's influence in that election. And so she 
loves her job. She said she's motivated by a passion for it and that we need to keep politics out of the elections. Speaking of politics, I want to get into, at least quickly here, the mayoral race uh, for... 2025. 2025. We're already talking about that and, and this week an announcement. Yes. This week, uh, John Courage announced, the councilman from District 9, who won a, he was reelected to his fourth and final term in a, the, what is the most conservative of the city's council districts, although he is, um, he's run for office as a Democrat, pretty liberal guy. Um, he also had Councilwoman Melissa Cabello Haverda tell Dream Week that she wanted to be the city's first Latina mayor. You've got two others, Councilman Manny Pelayas in District 8 and uh, Councilwoman Adriana Rocha Garcia. And who all also are considering this race. And they sound like Manny Pelias was in here last week and he sounded like he's going to announce maybe April. So he and Courage are done on the council. They're term limited after this year. Um, Cabello Haverda and Rocha Garcia both have a little more time. But there's already people lining up to run for Manny's seat. And they're already raising money. They can raise more money as if they're, a, <laughs> yes. if they're a running for mayor than they can as they a council. They can person. raise $1,000 a donor if they're running for mayor, 500 for council. But like the campaign accounts of this crew, are, it's pretty... Uh, their campaign accounts are not very prepared for a mayoral race, which I think is drawing in some interest from the outside. Um, Gina Ortiz-Jones is expected to make some sort of announcement soon. Um, former Republican Secretary of State Roland, Rolando Pablos. Uh, so it's going to be interesting and you're going to have a lot to report on. Yeah, but we have races sooner than that happening. We have got, you know, the primaries in March that are going to be... Right. Going to be um, interesting, especially, yes. say, Steve Allison and uh, La Hood. Yes, this one. Ken Paxton's coming in about that. Yeah, that one is like a proxy war for every division that's going on with Republicans in Austin. You've got um, Steve Allison has been in that seat since 2018, was elected after Joe Strauss retired. He is, is largely in alignment with conservatives on most issues, but he was a former school board president of Alamo Heights and has said that he draws the line on school vouchers, and he was one of the 21 or 22 Republicans that joined Democrats in shutting down Governor Abbott's school voucher plan, and now he finds himself targeted for that decision. By Paxton, who we uh -huh. also voted and for. And Abbott. Abbott will be here in a week. Ken Paxton was here last, yeah, last night um, campaigning for Mark LaHood, the former Republican district attorney candidate. Yeah. So keep busy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. You can catch Andrea Drush's uh, reporting in the San Antonio Report. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for this edition of On the Record. You can catch the show again or download any of the podcasts at klrn.org. I'm Randy Beamer, and we'll see you next time. is brought to you by Steve and Adele Dufalo.